title of tonight's talk is Working with Mudita. Uh, last week I talked about uh, compassion, which is karuna in, in Pali. And uh, karuna and mudita are both subsets or derivatives of metta, loving kindness. Loving kindness is kind of a a radiation, a uh, uh, an aspiration toward kindness that becomes expansive and inclusive of all your subjective experience and experience of the world. Um, with uh, mudita and karuna, they're empathetic in, in uh, that context. And empathy is something that's hardwired into the human uh, nervous system. We are social animals and uh, it is beneficial socially for uh, pack animals, if you will, which is what we are, to be able to cooperate or empathize with each other. It has survival value for the the group at large and for the individuals within the group. So uh, empathy is something that we're all hardwired for. With compassion, the empathy is um, organized around bringing kindness to the experience of dukkha of distress and confusion. Um, primarily with your own uh, practice experience, I mean, just a mere act of mindfulness of breathing, meditation, is compassion. It brings compassion to your, your life. Um, the uh, expression of compassion uh, is generated by uh, bringing loving-kindness to your empathetic awareness and your, your, the storyline that you imagine is going on for another interpersonally. And then behaviors are manifested accordingly. Now, with uh, mudita, um, the empathy is organized, organized around not the experience of bringing some kind of resolution or, or um, relief from dukkha, but rather to enhance the quality of sukha. Sukha is another Pali word that's usually translated as happiness, but it's a, it's a, a quality of calm, joyful appreciation that can be manifested in terms of your own subjective experience and also in terms of your experience in uh, interpersonal exchanges. So the typical translation of uh, mudita is sympathetic joy, but there are other alternative renderings 
empathic joy, appreciative joy, unselfish joy. Those are some examples. Um, now, personally, I see a close correlation between the expression of generosity, dana in Pali, um, not just gener generosity and, and mudita, not just generosity in terms of material goods, but also generosity that comes about through valuing someone else's presence, their accomplishments, um, their vitality, and uh, so forth. Um, so that, I think, is also very closely aligned with mudita. It's not the sole uh, origination of it, but I think it's a very important alliance, if you will. Here's a quote, uh, a Buddhist quote about this quality of, of generosity. These two people are hard to find in the world. Which two? The one who is first to do a kindness and the one who is grateful and thankful for a kindness done. Think about that in terms of pro-social uh, dynamics. So, one of the characteristics of mudita is it's unselfish. Now, let's parse that word a little bit. Unselfish generally means, you know, you don't cling to your possessions. But unselfish also means kind of dissolving, self-serving attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. So um, you might call it non-selfing. Um, it might involve congratulating a coworker who got a promotion that you could have gotten, or participating in the preparation of a birthday party for someone. Might be as simple as watching children gleefully enjoying their time playing. It is the antidote for jealousy and envy, which is considered the far enemy of mudita. The near enemy is experience of joy. That is, um, it's a, a kind of a compensation for your own low self-worth. In other words, celebrating someone else's happiness or success um, as a compensation for your own lack of life enjoyment. It's kind of like going along for the ride of a celebrity. Right? Get all excited and happy when you're around a celebrity. Um, it's not really your happiness. You're just... Um, picking up on the energy of the, of the exchange. Um, another way to think about the, the near enemy is the kind of overexcitement that occurs. The greatest example of that is uh, when your football team, your favorite football team, wins a game. You, know, you get really, really excited and, and uh, crazy about that. And you've, you've seen those on television or maybe experienced it yourself. I know I did when I was a teenager in high school and in college. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about 
the far enemy of jealousy and envy. Our sense of self is constructed through a certain kind of attribution or uh, assumption about your self-worth that is organized around being right, being successful, being famous, being popular, so forth and so on. That's the, the, the downside of this kind of empathy. That when you, when you see someone in your pack, so to speak, who is happy, um, successful, you might feel envious of that person because they have an experience of life. You, you, you pick up the vibe that they're very happy, they're very satisfied, uh, their life is uh, well-rounded, and yours isn't. Um, the uh, other uh, characteristic or aspect of that in jealousy is that uh, someone else has something that you think you deserve, and you don't have it. It's not fair. Uh, makes you angry makes you want to get even. So there's, there's a, a different kind of vibe in that sort of subjective experience. Um, when we're talking about or contemplating this notion of um, one's personal happiness, one's joy. We live in a world that manipulates our sense of identity through uh, consumerism. I've talked about this so many times because I think it's one of the major um, conflicts that we're all confronted with in the course of our lifetime. So I call that living from the outside in. In psychobabble, it's called an external locus of control. You believe that what brings value to your life is something that you own or that um, you possess. Maybe you know you possess particular status. And that is vulnerable to loss. When we all talk about impermanence and non-self, you know, you might be successful for a time and then things turn out badly. Maybe through your own um, self-absorption, your own arrogance, or simply because things, you know, circumstances changed in ways that were not at all favorable to success and happiness. For example, you know, just saw on the news tonight that um, a place in South Texas was hit by a tornado up to 130 mile an hour winds. Destroyed. It was, it was on the ground for 18 miles. Destroyed a lot of homes. We've seen a lot of that uh, the last few years. So, you know, that's not something that you uh, brought on yourself, but, you know, uh, 
it happens in life. Now, a person who has that kind of mentality, living from the outside in, when we suffer a catastrophe like that, our sense of self-worth is destroyed. Who am I if I don't own a, you know, uh, a house with uh, two cars and a swimming pool? Who am I? I'm nobody. I'm nothing. That's an external locus of control. It's one of the things that I valued about uh, the Dharma, about Buddhism, very early on, is that it cultivates what's called an internal locus of control, or living from the inside out. So, in terms of joy and happiness, um, what brings joy to mind is the absence of the hindrances. You know, one of the seven awakening factors is joy, PT, P-I-T-I in Pali. And uh, there's a, a quality of buoyancy and enthusiastic, engaged interest in what's occurring in awareness. That's a, a primary characteristic of joy. Uh, in the uh, Buddhist literature, it's also characterized as bliss, um, as uh, a certain kind of ecstasy. Um, and I think that that's a holdover from uh, uh, deep yogic practices, jhana practice. But as far as I'm concerned, when we're talking about something like sympathetic joy, it's associated you know, the, the, the association is made because the mind is not burdened by aversion and ill will or desire. There's a quality of um, lightness in the mind, of uh, buoyancy, of um, celebration, enjoyment. I've talked about this many times. You know, I've been I've been practicing this half my life, and one of the things I told people is that when I first started practicing, most of my practice was warding off demons. In the last fifteen or so years, it's been more about what I call feeding the angels, and that's a sense of joy, gratitude, happiness, even when things are going bad. Now that doesn't mean that I you know I chuckle when. Um, a freeze comes through and messes with my mango tree, right? That That's not uh, pleasant, but it's not destructive of my well-being. There's, first of all, there's an interest in, look what happens to a mind when it's confronted with, you know, having the expectation of eating mangoes from my tree later this year, and... Um, it's not going to happen. For two years in a row, we had a freeze last year. However, this year we managed to protect protect the smaller mango tree, and it's still blooming. So I'm still hoping, right? But through all of that, there's a quality of being uplifted and resilient to the uh, burden of the loss of 
the mango potential in my life, so to speak. And there are many other examples that are uh, more impactful, less trivial than that. Uh, I won't necessarily go into them. Uh, but that's what we're talking about with joy. The more we cultivate uh, mindfulness of breathing meditation and loving kindness for that practice, the more joy is released in uh, our uh, subjective awareness. And that joy is manifested in the context of relationships. Not just relationships human to human, but you know, one of my most joyful relationship experiences is going for a walk with my dog twice a day or playing with her in the backyard or in the house. Because of her exuberance, her, you know, she has a quality of buoyancy about her, her spirit. You know, she's just three years old. She's just growing out of being a puppy. And it's just, it brings a smile to my face more than once a day. Now, I could... Uh, that could turn into uh, anger if my uh, experience uh, with her got soured by aversion and ill will. You know, if she does something that is, you know, not approved of, I might get loud and forceful with her, but that's what she understands. But I'm not really angry. I'm just loud and forceful because that's what she understands doesn't sour my enjoyment of being uh, with her. So there's an intentionality about that kind of approach to relationship. And she is probably one of my most important relationships that I practice sympathetic joy with and generosity. Doing things that will make her happy. You know, it might be giving her a snack, although I have to cut back on the snacks. The vet says that she's a bit overweight now because I've been too generous, right? That's the near enemy of sympathetic joy. Um, so that kind of simple down-to-earth example can really un help us understand how this works. Now, when I talked about compassion uh, in last week's uh meeting, which was on the uh, 18th, it's posted on the website, I talked about the, how the brain operates that produces uh, empathy and compassion. So I want to touch back on that just a little bit. Uh, there's a part of the brain that is just above our ears inside our skulls. It's called the insular cortex. And it is represents the transition between the cerebral cortex where we do most of our high order thinking um, and self-regulation and the what's called the limbic system which is where emotions are uh, processed. So we become more internally aware through the uh, neurons that are associated with the insular cortex we also all become more interpersonally aware. There are other parts of the brain that are associated with that. But that part of the brain is 
impacted by mindfulness meditation. There's been a significant amount of research, it's ongoing, that uh, uses uh, what's called a functional MRI device to notice where the blood is flowing in the brain, which means that's where the neural activity is, you know, uh, activated. And uh, it varies depending on what kind of task someone is given. So they had trained monks uh, to contemplate sympathetic joy and watch what happened in their brain. And they discovered that the insular cortex and the left uh, preorbital cortex was activated. That's the area above the left eye. Stronger than it would be in someone who's not, does, hasn't really developed their mind through uh, meditation. So, uh, that's an important thing to realize. that This practice actually restructures the way the brain operates. It's like uh, changing the hardware in the brain, which is pretty miraculous um, when you think about it. Uh, you know, the discovery of what's called neuroplasticity is probably one of the most important uh, discoveries in the late 20th century. And uh, there's a strong association between neuroplasticity and uh, contemporary uh, research on uh, mindfulness meditation and loving-kindness meditation. So, um, in the context of this empathic attunement that goes on in those areas of the brain, that empathy can either be associated with jealousy and envy uh, or uh, being really super excited about a football game or it can be balanced it can be more um, associated with a quiet, joyful interest in what it's like to be alive. And that's uh, what we're talking about here. So that there's a quality of joy that's developed internally through uh, the application of mindfulness and investigation of mental phenomena and right effort, the first three of the seven awakening factors combined with loving kindness. And so um, that's how this process operates. Mm. Mm. Now I want to say this again because it's that important. When our happiness is dominated by external conditions, it becomes that, that quality of attention, of joyful, engaged interest can be flipped into jealousy and envy or anger. Just like I said with, with loving kindness, um, the far enemy of loving kindness is aversion and ill will. The near enemy of loving kindness is um, idealized affection. And when someone doesn't realize what you imagine they should do to be loving you, then your mind flips to, well, then I should hate them. 
because they're not giving me what I want. The same thing is true in terms of sympathetic joy. There's a, a sense of reward. For example, my interactions with my dog. There's a sense of joy um, as I empathize with her youthfulness and exuberance. Um, and, you know, it's obvious that she just adores me and my wife. I mean, that's just what happens with dogs. They have that, that quality about them. And that's great fun. But then she misbehaves. And I could get really harsh with her because she's not behaving the way she's supposed to. But I don't. I just know she's being a dog. That doesn't mean that I might not get loud and assertive with her because that's what she will respond to. But it's not driven by aggression. Very important distinction to make. All right, now let me talk about um, generosity as it relates to this. Generosity is a willingness to let go of something that you value that will be a benefit to someone else. It could be monetary. It, it, you know, it could be material, give someone a present. I think more importantly, more frequently, more normally, it's a generosity of spirit. It's a quality of being willing to pay attention to people that is not necessarily convenient for you. Um, it's one of the things that I, I cultivated as a psychotherapist. You know, when people are troubled, they need psychotherapy, quite often they ramble on. Um, they talk about things that are not really relevant because that's the way they've learned to avoid their distress and confusion. Or they keep circling back to a primary uh, dysfunction in their thinking or their low self-esteem and uh, generosity comes from being willing to go there with them. That's more aligned with compassion. But there's also a quality of being generous in terms of helping somebody learn something or helping someone um, be successful, mentoring someone. You know, I'm, I'm mentoring uh, several folks now who are... Uh, want to become teachers with Orlando Insight. And that, I, that brings me great joy. I very much enjoy it. I enjoy teaching. Uh, but it's generous. You know, I'm, I'm giving of my time and my effort uh, for the betterment of others. That is an important form of generosity that we often don't think about. We don't do that intentionally. So, um, it's important to realize that there are different levels of generosity in this regard. The, the, most, the, the least beneficial level of generosity is miserly. 
you give as little as you can get away with and you want to make sure that you get full credit for it. The next level of generosity, you're willing to be more forthcoming with whatever you're providing. It could be material, it could be interpersonal. So you're not stingy in that regard, but you still want people to to know that you're doing it and like you for it. The highest level of generosity is occurs when you're providing something of benefit to others without anyone knowing about it. Now, I was reading today about a farmer in Mississippi or Alabama. I don't remember where. But this man had a farm and he lives in a small farming community, like a thousand people or less. Everybody knows everybody there. Well, he decided that he was going to go to the pharmacy, the local pharmacy, and give $100 a month to the pharmacist and say, I don't want you to tell anybody, but if somebody comes in and they needs medication, I want you to use that money to help pay their, their uh, medicine. He did that for years. He just died recently. It was secretive. The only person who knew about it was him and the pharmacist. But then when he became elderly and ill, he told his daughter. So his daughter is doing that now. Um, and they had, in the story, in the, in the news report, they had examples of how his generosity had literally saved the life of someone. Um, so this went out, this information, this story went out through the media. Well, now it's happening in several areas around the country. There are people who are channeling money into this town who never have been there because they wanted to keep going. And there are people who are creating this kind of organization, this kind of generosity in various areas around the country. Isn't that interesting? And he didn't want anybody to know about it. He just wanted to do it because he cared about the people in that community. He knew them. Uh, he wanted to help them, but he did not want anyone to, you know, he didn't want to become prideful, let's put it that way. So that's a very interesting story. I, when I read that, I thought, I want to mention this tonight in that Dharma talk. So, um, hmm. You know, the first level, being stingy and wanting to get credit for it, if someone still benefits from it, fine. But there's not, the, the quality of joy is dissipated or distorted, drained of its potency because there's this quality of, yeah, but I want to make myself important. You know, it's selfish. Uh, the second level is less selfish uh, and it's more generous so there's more potential for joy there. But the greatest potential for joy is simply through providing something of benefit to someone else without expecting any kind of reward for it. Without any attaboys or what a great person you are. Just do it because it feels good to do it. Try it and see how it works. 
So to that end, um, well, let me add this to it. There's also modern research has created a, a particular kind of um, dynamic of change in one's personality. When you do something, a singular event that's generous, that's called a state of sympathetic joy. It's something you do that's kind of unique. Um, or maybe it's something you do when somebody's birthday comes up. Or uh, Christmas or Hanukkah or some other you know celebration where people provide gifts for each other. Um, so there's that state awareness, but then there's what's called trait awareness. So if you string a bunch of those states together and it becomes a routine in your personality, it's something that you do on a regular basis, then it becomes a trait. Now, the state of joy is nowhere near as stable, accessible, or uh, enduring as trait is. So when you practice mindfulness of breathing meditation and or loving-kindness meditation on a regular basis, what you're doing is you are cultivating the ability for your personality to move from a state of joy to a trait of joy. And this is what I mean when I said I've been feeding the angels. My life is much more joyful. I have much more gratitude, much more uh, appreciation for the beauty of this planet that we live on. I am much less adversely impacted by the craziness that's going on in our society and uh, the threats to the environment and so forth. Sure, they're, they're, they're important, but I'm not dragged down by it because of the gratitude that I feel for what is good and the joy that I experience from teaching. So I just wanted to share that with you, that this actually has worked in my life and continues to work in my life, that I'm developing this trait uh, of joy in my life, of, of happiness that um, I've earned, for sure, because I did not used to be that way. Uh, so uh, I wanted to share that with you, that it really does work, if you want to take my word for it. Um, hmm. I mentioned gratitude. That's another way to cultivate sympathetic joy, is to contemplate being grateful when you have benefited from someone else's kindness, generosity, patience, so forth and so on. Um, very important thing to do to cultivate uh, joy because it becomes reciprocal. If someone's kind to you, you can be kind to them and it, you know that it feels good when you're the recipient of kindness and you know they'll feel good when you provide something for them out of kindness and 
it's a win-win situation, but it also starts to move from state to trait in terms of how your personality is organized. All right, so here are some things that you can do to cultivate sympathetic joy. Mindfulness meditation. The more you practice mindfulness of breathing meditation, the less impactful the hindrances are. Uh, averse, a sense desire, aversion, ill will, restlessness and worry, uh, um, sloth and torpor, and skeptical doubt. All of those are what I call energy dumps. One of the characteristics of joy is uh, more energy is freed up in your system, your selfing system. It's not um, circling around the drain, which would happen if you're resentful or fearful or uh, greedy or um, doubtful, you know, or dull and, and sluggish or worried all the time. There's just more buoyancy in your uh, sense of being. So um, that kind of sets the conditions that are conducive for uh, sympathetic joy to emerge. And the, one of the markers for that is the cultivation of uh, what's called upachara samadhi, access concentration. You might, in this context of this discussion, it's access to joy, access to happiness, access to tranquility. Um, so uh, there's a quality of attention that is stable and undisturbed by the hindrances. The more you can stay with mindfulness of breathing, the more you can stay with the breath sensations, the more that is cultivated. It becomes what's called trait mindfulness. Uh, you might, just out of curiosity, Google trait mindfulness. There's been a lot of research done on that. Um, and what the characteristics and benefits of trait mindfulness are. One of them is you're calmer, your, uh, your focus of attention is more stable, you're less uh, affected by stress, and your life generally becomes more joyful. Um, and you have more room to be generous, not necessarily financially generous, but generous of spirit, tolerant of other people's quirks, more patient, so forth and so on. So, here's some contemplations that you could bring into your practice as well. Um, recall when you publicly appreciated someone's accomplishment. How did that feel? You know, maybe when you were at a child's birthday party and you gave them a gift and the child was just so excited, so delighted and grateful, and you felt a surge, that's your empathy in process. Um, so uh, that would be something that you could contemplate and maybe put into practice and pay attention to that. Now, uh, I was gifted 
a very important gift that was given to me um, over 42 years ago. It's a book by Joseph Goldstein called The Experience of Insight. I was showing it to somebody uh, yesterday and it's in, in our library. Actually, it's not because I, you know, I let her take her to read. But that was given to me for Christmas in 1981, and it changed my life. It's probably the most important gift I've ever been given. And I feel a great deal of gratitude and joy uh, for having been gifted with that experience, that opening, it opened a door for me to change my life. Um, recall a time of celebration when you were at somebody's wedding or graduation or anniversary or something like that. Just being present and witnessing someone else's joy. Recall a time when you were just being kind in ways that still bring warm feelings. I was talking about my dog. Obviously, that brings warm feelings up for me. Um, and, I, and I'm very intentional about that. I know it's what's going to happen. You know, there's a certain time of day when there's an interaction between me and the dog and we both know it's, it's a time to go for a walk. And I can feel that coming up. She can feel it coming up. And it's, it's great fun for both of us. You can have that same kind of encounter with anybody. There are certain people who... Uh, price our groceries at the supermarket that we see on a regular basis. And my wife loves to tell them jokes. And I enjoy watching my wife tell the jokes and uh, the reception of the other person. Um, one of the things that I like to do is thank somebody who's done me a service. Because people who are tech support or other kinds of service workers are often, you know, it's a difficult job. They have to deal with upset, angry people. Um, I asked them if they would see to it that they would enjoy the rest of their day. Right? A very simple comment. I mean it sincerely. It's very intentional. It's a little gift that I can give them. So find ways that you can be a gift to someone's experience through your own intentional actions. That's a, another way to cultivate sympathetic joy. Um, so, this is what I have to say tonight about sympathetic joy. Now we have opportunities for people to share your experiences of sympathetic joy or um, questions you may have about what I've said tonight. I think it would be really useful for you all to reflect on your experience of sympathetic joy, either being provider of it, uh, of someone's uh, providing someone with, with your generosity or being the recipient of someone else's generosity. And reflect on that when you're mentioning it and see if it doesn't bring a little bit of boost to your mood. So, anybody? Joy. Yeah, one of the things I always do when I'm at a grocery store 
or on the telephone is when someone says, is there anything else I can do for you? And I say, yeah, have an incredible evening. And I promise it'll be here any minute, promise. And they're thrilled. And you're smiling when you're saying this. Yeah. And their day just got shorter. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's intentional. And it, it's a win-win situation. Thank you for sharing that. Other? Uh, yes, John? No, I can't hear you. Okay, I think I had to mute up. Or yeah, you're good. Now. You're good now. Um, it's It's... It's just refreshing to hear uh, there are a lot of us that live by ourselves that sitting every day, one of the benefits of sitting every day is to enhance the empathy attunement to yourself and to other people. You don't realize it. You get sick of the habit and you start stomping around and you don't. It's just nice to realize or to feel what that is when you stop, slow down. You know, and that's, I guess, that's why I sit, except sometimes I do forget. You know, even when I'm sitting, I can find a reason to, to get up and have a cup of coffee. You know what I mean? Like, well, I'll finish sitting, and that's been a recent agitation, but it's nice to uh, reattune, rebalance. And uh, state to trait is a great way to put it, you know what I mean? Because it's a state of this empathy that that if you consistently sit, becomes a trait, and then you don't have to worry about it, but it's it's a constant um, piece of work. It, it's a constant piece of work. I don't care what anybody says, and that's what I like so much about listening to you talk and our sangha, and I'm done for Wednesday. <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank you. So let me talk a little bit more about the state to trait uh, using a simile. Let's say you have a, a sloping uh, uh, hillside and uh, it rains. In one particular area of the slope, the, the soil is not packed quite as tightly. So a little channel starts to flow down it. Now, that little channel, we can call that a state, right? Because the next time it rains, it may get wiped out and the surface become fairly uniform again. But if the water keeps moving through that little tiny channel, what happens is the channel becomes deeper. Water doesn't come into it from the top of the slope. It also comes into it through the slide, the sides of that channel. So it not only gets deeper, it gets wider and eventually becomes a really dominant feature of that hillside. That's the difference between a state and a trait. You keep running the energy through particular neural pathways. You know, they talk about uh, a, a trait uh, anger or trait uh, um, depression. It becomes an organizing principle of a person's personality, of their life. Well, we can do the opposite with that, of that with, with uh, intentionality, cultivation of mindfulness and uh, loving kindness and uh, the other derivatives of it. Um, 
compassion and sympathetic joy. Um, so, other comments about your experience of sympathetic joy or uh, getting seeking clarification for something that I've said. Devin? Well, I have a three-year-old and I think this would be a topic he would be able to understand quite well. He's got a friend at his daycare who's got a birthday coming up and planning to go to their party. So hope to um, teach him something about, oh, your friend is happy because of this thing that you've done for them. So appreciate that. Yeah, pay attention to it. Invite him to pay attention to how he feels in his tummy. And pay attention to, you know, how he's laughing and feeling of, of buoyancy. Um, that will be very helpful. And, and that's called mentalizing. One of the important functions of a parent is to be able to help a child put words to what they're experiencing. Because they're, this is the first time they've experienced something like joy or sadness. And if you can say to them, oh, this is, this, you're, you're, I can tell you're smiling, you're excited, this is what we call joy. What's it feel like inside? So in the future, your child can be more aware of what it feels like to be joy, know what the words are, and that will actually start to build that channel that I was just talking about. Does that make sense? Mentalizing. Other questions or comments? Julian. Yeah. Thank you, Peter, for the, um, for the talk and the uh, meditation. Uh, I was reflecting just now about the um, like this uh, relationship between joy and some other um, some other things. So, for example, gratitude. No, or um, so I guess they come hand by hand, and one nourishes the other one. Um, so, just I'm thinking, like when I reflect, oh, I'm grateful because you know simple things. That's that's because I, I'm also kind of um, joyful about what's happening, even though there are probably some uh, during the day I have problems or I have uh, situations which I may not like, but still um, there is some some sense that uh, that life can go in a in a good way. Or there is there will be time for solving these inactive uh, 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 with positive actions. So yeah, I just um, oh, and also for example, reflecting on, on when one sits, also like this kind of serenity is also uh, uh, makes me joyful. Yes. Of uh, of. Uh, just go into the day and try to do uh, the best way I can do for any kind of situation. Yes, absolutely right. 
you know, um, one of the things we talk about in, in psychology is what's called a negativity bias, which means that you, you go into a situation and you see opportunities for things to go bad. And I'm not saying that it makes things go bad, but it creates an attitude of discouragement or fear or resentment or some other kind of unpleasant, uh, unwholesome mind state. Alternatively, when you just described about you know your meditation practice and how it brings more joy to your life and so forth and so on, that's a positivity bias. That's an inclination toward benevolence, resiliency to stress, kindness, happiness, and so forth and so on. Because the mind is building a sense of self and a response set according to how the energy of your attention is being channeled. So, uh, yes, what you're talking about, Julian, is, is uh, very important. Any other questions or comments? Now, next week will not be the typical Peter's going to do a Dharma talk night. Next week, Leslie is going to be presenting a topic. And Leslie, I'd like for you to take a moment to describe what you plan to talk about, please. I'd love to. Thank you. Um, okay, so you, you all, some of you I know were at the last uh, talk that I gave back in, um, I don't know when was that? In December. In December. In December. Yeah. Oh, that's right. And I talked on impermanence. I was primarily focusing on the three characteristics of existence, which are impermanence, uh, suffering, and non-self. So, and as I think I kind of made clear in that talk, I'm fairly well obsessed with the, with the notion of impermanence these days uh, uh, for lots of reasons, um, more reasons that I'm discovering all the time. I have thought it's primarily because I'm getting so old, but uh, I think there are lots of uh, cultural, uh, sociological, political, phenomenology, phenomenological uh, reasons that we all are um, suffering from lack of, as I said in a, my last talk, of a healthy relationship with the concept of impermanence. So um, I don't think I have the book handy here, but uh, I have read a wonderful book recently by Oliver Berkman, who's an English journalist actually it's called 4,000 weeks um, time management for mortals and uh, not 4,000 weeks 4,000 yeah 4,000 weeks which he says is approximately the number of weeks that we have to live in a lifetime that's a pretty scary number isn't it 4,000 is not very many and when you get to be 75 years old you've got a lot fewer than 4,000 weeks to go anyway this book has just fascinated me and gripped me and I am very eager to continue my exploration of the 
three characteristics of existence in the light of some of the concepts that he presents in this book, which are, he never once mentions the Buddha, but in the margins as I was reading, um, I just kept putting the terms, the concepts from, from uh, the Buddhist tradition that uh, he's essentially talking about. So anyway, uh, if, you, um, if you are game, I would love to have you join me next week for a lively conversation about, about death, dying, finitude, and impermanence. Doesn't that sound like a great party? <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yep, same time, same channel. You just yeah. tune into it like you do every Wednesday night. Um, yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot, Lily, but you know, you're going to be giving a talk the following Wednesday night. So do you want to just briefly touch on what you're thinking right now? I realize I'm not expecting it to be complete, but just some kind of general notion of what you want to talk about. Whoops, from Barbershire. Hello. Okay. Can you... Oh, he's, oh. she's putting Emilio to bed. <laughs> so, um, the last time we talked, she was thinking about mindful parenting. Or I was suggesting that she talk about mindful parenting. Because she is a great example of mindful parenting. From the time that her baby was in the womb, she's been practicing mindfulness. And um, so... Um, that might be what she's going to talk about. She and I are going to clarify that before I go on my retreat. The reason why um, Leslie and Lily are going to be doing the talk is because next Wednesday night, uh, the teacher for the retreat that we're having from the 3rd to the 10th of February, uh, Shyla Catherine, is actually going to be staying here in this building. And um, the same is... Uh, the following Wednesday is when she's going to be staying in this building before the retreat starts and she's we're going to be on the retreat uh, the following Wednesday. But the Wednesday after that, the, uh, the 10th, 11th, 12th, probably the 15th, I guess. I think that's when it will be. Um, Wednesday... Yeah, the 15th would be the next uh, time I'll be here for the Dharma talk. All right, so um, let's, as is our custom, let's uh, ha sit for a moment. Thank you for your practice. I uh, wish you well, and I hope that we're all reasonably safe and happy till the next time we all meet here. <laughs>